I think a big piece of baking by feel and sort of how I think about emotions generally is that it's really easy to categorize them as either being good or bad, positive or negative, productive or unproductive. But something that was really important to me when I was writing Baking by Feel is that we don't need to judge ourselves for those emotions that we experience. There are no good or bad emotions. Um, they're just emotions. I like to say that the book is emotionally agnostic. Welcome to Didn't I Just Feed You, a podcast about feeding kids. Hi, I'm Stacy, And I'm Megan. Today, we're talking about one of my favorite forms of therapy, baking and eating your feelings. <laughs> we really only talk about baking feelings, but I like how you threw eating in there, too. Maybe we need to talk about uh, eating you know, our feelings a little bit. You know, maybe we do, because it actually did come up for me in the interview, where I was like, you ask me a question about, do I cook my feelings? And I answer, so you guys listen and get to that. But I was like, but do I eat my feelings? And that, to me, they are actually separate for me. Because sometimes when I'm emotional, I eat and I don't feel like cooking. Yes. So same. Yeah. Sometimes I'm baking so that I can eat the thing. And sometimes I'm just eating for the emotions. Remember for yeah. a while on Instagram, I was like, oh, we're <laughs> having cheese-covered feelings for dinner tonight. <laughs> Which usually just meant I was like, Stressed out and overwhelmed, and so we were having like cheesy pasta. Yes, I do remember that. Let's bring it back. Let's, br let's, let's bring, bring it, it back. back. But that's so interesting to me that it really it is like a different function. And yes, I guess it makes sense because when you're feeling emotional, there are different tools in the toolbox. But I wonder, can you think about for yourself when do you have the urge to? bake through your feelings versus just sit and eat <laughs> eat them? Okay, great question. I think it's a time factor. Mm, if I mm -hmm. know that I have time, even like on a weeknight, and I can spend like 35 minutes making a quick like loaf cake or chocolate chip cookies is my number one forever go-to, then I choose to do that because even if I'm going to eat my feelings, there is some processing that happens in the baking. So I'm less likely to overeat and binge eat, which we should talk about maybe like in a whole other follow-up episode because my emotional eating is tied to like overeating often. And then when I feel pressed for time, or it's an emotion that needs comforting less than processing. Like I'm stressed or I'm upset about something and I know that there's a resolution, but like I just need to feel soothed. Then I'm more likely to just straight up eat my feelings and not always sweets, like sometimes savory things. Like what? Cheese. Cheese. I love like highly salty, snacky things a lot, mm -hmm. um, like chips and dip and like tend to overeat them. But what about you? Do you have, is there a difference for you or is it always just emotional eating and what's your yeah, craving? So I was thinking about this through the interview with Becca. I process my feelings through talking. Yeah. You know, I'm not an alone processor and I don't know. It's very interesting to me that I think it's so exhausting when I'm experiencing big feelings and like thinking and talking and thinking and talking and thinking and talking that I exhaust myself and I actually am less inclined to go into the kitchen and cook or bake. 
Although I do have a little bit of a revelation about this during our conversation with Becca, but I, it's like maybe too solitary. It'd probably be really good for me to try to find more meditative ways for me to process my feelings before I open my mouth or act like I'm a very talker actor. See, I think that's also a big distinction. I think there are people who process things internally and then there are people who process things externally. And I think Brian and I are too different, which is why I like get upset with him for like raising his voice and he gets upset with me for retreating. He's like, I don't understand how that solves anything. Me and Mike, same. And we're the in like we're the reverse of you guys. Yes. Yeah. I'm a chaser talker. Like I, I feel it right now and like I want to talk and there's a lot of emotion in my voice, whether it's sad or angry or whatever. And he's so overwhelmed by it because he really yeah. needs time. He like cannot process his feelings on the fly. And I'm not like this is something he says about himself. You know, this yeah. is not like revealing something. He like really needs time to stop, cool down, think, figure out what's going on and then talk. I wonder how much of that is like um, upbringing, birth yeah, order, interesting. so much stuff like that, like how you learn to process. We I we took us way out and you alluded to it once already. But today we're joined by author and activist Becca Ray Tucker, who many of you may already know as the sweet feminist on Instagram. Cece, do you follow Becca's work? I do. But I have to admit that I really think have always thought of her primarily as an activist. Like, I know that baking is her medium, but I just have, I think of her as an activist first and then a baker. And now that's all switched around. I don't think it has to be switched around. I think they're one in the same because yeah. I think she really rose to notoriety by having cakes with yes. thoughtful, pithy, all different arrangements that needed to thoughts, be said things that needed to be said piped in buttercream and so then it's felt like they were shared on every corner of the internet um and there's been a lot of copycats i've certainly been inspired by her work and that is on our instagram and on my personal instagram but you know what's really fun is that we had aaron mcdowell on last fall to talk about her book savory baking and i was talking about being an emotional baker and she was like hey wait wait stop you have to get my friend Becca on the show because she has this great book, Baking My Feel. And it took us a while, but now we're here. And I love how it times up with Mental Health Awareness Month, which is May, where it's just like talking about your struggles with mental health, talking about your emotions brings awareness to it. And it's why I try to at least once a year <laughs> talk about my own struggle with mental health. With Becca, we talk about the connection between mental health specifically maternal mental health and food and caring for our families. So I, I don't want to like, I want to get right into our time with Becca. But before we do that, before we do that, you want to do it? I was going to do it. We were both on exactly I'm giving it the to same you. wavelength. Yes. If you guys would like to support Din, I Just Feed You, there are several ways to do that. You can leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen. You can share this episode with a friend. This is actually like a really great, sweet one to share with a friend. Or you can join our free community at didn'tijustfeedyou.com backslash community. Yes, joining our free community is a way of showing us support. It doesn't, you don't have to pay us if you don't have the money to or you don't care to. So 
think about that. And that also gives you access to us, which is really fun. And then if financial support of the show is in your budget and you do want those extra goodies, you can also find out about our super fan community, or you can subscribe to our bonus feed in Apple podcasts. So many glorious ways to support us. Yes. And keep us ticking right along. We're coming up on five years. That's I can't wild. believe it. And I can't believe it's the first time we're talking about mental health. We talked about mental load, but like eating our feelings and all of the connections between all those things. So today's guest, Becca Ray Tucker, is a baker and author with a passion for mixing sugar plus strong opinions. She likes using baked goods as an artistic medium talking about feelings, destigmatizing abortion, and all butter pie crust. Me too. Her first cookbook, Baking by Feel, is out now. She lives in Austin, Texas with her husband and pup. Welcome to the show, Becca. Becca, I love that your book opens with this idea that when researching the emotions in general, like how we deal with emotions for Baking by Feel, you found that a number of kid books talk about emotions and like how they are to be identified and how they are to be felt. And then when you went to look at emotional books for adults, there were many fewer of them that talked about naming and feeling. And it's more like, how do you get through it and process it? So one thing I'm curious about is, did you grow up in a home where you were taught emotional intelligence or the power of emotions? Yes. So I would say that in my home growing up, um, we were open about our emotions, um, but sort of it sometimes seemed like we were controlled by them. Um, and so the, the emotions sort of dictated the course of our day rather than being something that we took the time and the space to actively work through. And I think a big piece of baking by feel and sort of how I think about emotions generally um, is that it's really easy to categorize them as either being good or bad, positive or negative, productive or unproductive. But something that was really important to me when I was writing Baking by Feel is that we don't need to judge ourselves um, for those emotions that we experience. There are no good or bad emotions. Um, there are just emotions. I like to say that the book is emotionally agnostic. And I'd go even further to say that when we are categorizing those emotions as bad or sort of judging ourselves for experiencing them, uh, we're sort of holding them at arm's length um, and we can even be preventing ourselves from feeling them. Yes. I love so much. This is just like one highlight of the book. It's it's broken up into like broad strokes, categories like happy, sad, angry. But then within those are the smaller emotions. And I just like had an outside giggle to know that feisty is included in the happy section, yeah. which we think of like as sometimes being a negative emotion, but it's actually very fun and can be full of joy. Right. And other people's categorizations of the emotions might be different than mine. I've broken them up into these categories, but if it, that's not your categories, that's completely fine with me. Uh, the book is choose your own adventure. You choose what to bake based on whatever you're feeling that day. Um, and so it's available to you regardless of how I have categorized them. So how did you first like connect your relationship to baking? Because you've always been a baker. Yes. Your grandmother was a baker. 
with different moods you were feeling? Yeah, so I think that people have always used baking and cooking as a way to process their emotions. I think we saw this really clearly um, at the beginning yes, of the totally. pandemic uh, when people were, you know, buying up all the flour, making yep. bread. Um, and so I think it's something that I have always done, um, but I am also someone who intellectualizes emotions. I had the opportunity to go to therapy for the first time at the beginning of the pandemic as well. Um, and so I realized that, you know, I can describe these emotions to you perfectly, um, but that doesn't mean that I'm necessarily feeling them. And I didn't actually realize that there was a difference between those two things um, for a long time. But something that I sort of found was that it's easier if I'm doing something physical um, with my body, which for me is baking. I'm a baker. And that can actually help me process those emotions um, because I'm creating this physical space. I'm doing something tactile uh, to engage with all of my senses. And that sort of helps me get out of my own way, out of my own head um, and feel the, the emotions in my body while I'm doing something else. So I'm not sitting there just trying to think really hard about the emotions um, and try to process them that way. So interesting. I also identify as a baker by heart. I ha I have a culinary degree, but it's not like the main part of my work anymore. But I've always baked as a way to process. And I was thinking about this recently, how actually for me, it's like that baking is such a muscle memory. Like if I'm making chocolate chip cookies, my body knows what to do yes. in a way that freeze up my mind. Like my body is fully focused on the mixing and the scooping and the baking and turning the trays around in a way that actually allows my brain to be like, oh, you were really agitated about this thing earlier. And like, here's what was really going on here. Yes. I do think it's it's interesting. And I want to kind of ask Stacey this because she does not identify. I have a, a question related okay. to this that I was going to say I want for both yeah. of you. Okay, cool. So can I ask you, do you feel like you process emotion, Stacey, while you're cooking? Too? So this is really interesting. This was the question. I will answer your question. But I, as you two were talking, I was sort of percolating on this. That, first of all, it's just really kind of an interesting you know, sample of one, so not necessarily meaningful thing that I have these two kids, one who is extremely emotional. When you were talking about children's books, I was thinking about the fact that we used to have to read this book, Bombaloo, all the time when Oliver was little, because he would have these huge emotional outbursts. And what I've come to realize now, and also like he ended up getting a therapist when he was younger and like he always wants to talk about his feelings is that he was just a really, he's a really emotional person who has a really strong connection to his feelings that he just was too little to figure out how to articulate and cope with. So, you know, they were just, he was like popping off in all these different ways. And as he's gotten older and we helped support him with the tools to figure out like how to articulate his feelings, when he needs time alone, when he needs to go be physical and active to work something out, He's totally evened out in so many ways. And then his older brother's really cerebral and not emotional at all. And Oliver loves baking <laughs> and Isaac does not. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. I wonder if there is some natural connection there and like what it would actually be about, like on a really like basic fundamental level. But I think of myself as a emotional person too. And baking's never been my thing. And the question was going to be like, for you guys, 
baking is a natural place where you could work through emotions, but if it's not, do you think that people can start baking and it can become a tool for them to work through their emotions? Like if I just got into baking more and when I was feeling big feelings, like just experimented with regularly getting in the kitchen and baking, do you think that there's like a high probability that I could end up using this as a tool? Yeah, so I do. Um, I think some people are more naturally inclined to bake. I think there's also a lot of people feel intimidated by baking um, because there's so many rules. You know, even if you like cooking, you might not like baking because it seems like it's so precise. There's no room to really play. But something that I talk about in Baking by Feel, there's the feel part is not just about feelings. Um, it's also about using sensory cues. So it's learning to trust your own intuition um, in the kitchen. So does it smell right to you? Um, I'm telling you the when you're making Swiss meringue and you're rubbing the sugar and eggs between your fingers, um, when the sugar crystals dissolve, mm. that's when you know mm -hmm. that it's done. Um, so there are ways that you can actually be immersed in the process and start feeling those things um, and become more confident in your baking. Um, but the way that I see the book is that it is a tool in your toolkit of many things to use to process your emotions. And I'm surprised that so many um, parents actually use the book with their children. It is a unexpected demographic. Yeah. I mean, I hoped that that would happen. It totally um, makes but that sense. Is, yeah, but there have been a lot of people that have shared with me that there are children who have perhaps never had an interest in baking before, never baked before, um, took to the concept and sort of got it and looked through the list of emotions. They're like, okay, I think this is how I'm feeling today. And then, you know, they'll make this cake together. So I do think that you can learn to use the book as well, even if baking isn't always for you. I just want to say as someone who has a background in child development, it was something that jumped out at me that your book is great for that. And as someone who has a kid like Oliver, who I just described, <laughs> who loves baking and is like full of feelings, it it's like and it's such a delightful thing for him to connect those two things too, instead of being like, baking's over here and this stuff is over here. Like, oh, this is actually a tool in my toolbox, like you said, along with other things that he's identified, like being physical or going and taking a walk or running around the block or jumping around, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Children to seem to just take to the idea. They accept it as... Sure, this can be a thing that can be paired together. It's not strange at all. Um, so I've, I've really appreciated that with parents and children using my book together. I would add to that baking is like any other form of an emotional outlet or therapy that you take on. Like the first handful of times that you do it as a practice of feeling your emotions, it's going to feel weird or awkward and you're not actually going to be doing the thing I'm mentioning of like, oh, I'm muscle memorying. And so my brain is released to feel my emotions. You're going to be like trying to do both things at one time. It feels right. weird. Right. I also think, especially when we bake for others, having the intention, like I'm making this cake for my friend and I want to like feel the love and think about the love that I have for this person as I'm doing that is like a really great way to not like be necessarily processing emotions, but like also translating that whole food is love into what you're actually doing. Yes. That's one of my favorite things is watching people eat things that I have made um, and yes. feeling having a physical manifestation of my affection is really nice for me. It's really interesting to me that this conversation is in four years that we've been recording and Megan is 
a professional baker, whereas I've, you know, I've developed plenty of sweet baking recipes and savory baking recipes, mostly sweet, but I'm, I'm more of a cook like that's, you know, savory cook. This has been the first conversation that has really piqued my interest in baking in a whole different way. And I want to circle back to your question to me, Megan, about do I feel that way with cooking? Because I, I don't think that I do. I mean, every once in a while, I think I used to more when I used to cook when I was entertaining because I do love entertaining. But between like family life and the pandemic, entertaining has really like dwindled for me. So I just, I'm not like tapped into those, that feeling anymore, which I'd love to reignite, but there's something different about baking. When I've approached baking, it's always been like, I'm craving a brownie or a chocolate chip cookie. It's usually something like really simple and like one of a handful of things that I'd like to eat, like coffee cake, pie, brownies, and chocolate chip cookies is pretty much like my craving repertoire when it comes to baking. But if I were to really think about going into a baking project with the intention of working through feelings, and then just like you do back in the book, if I'm feeling anger, maybe I need something that I can pound, you know, like I can really work the dough, like connecting the actions in baking with the feelings and giving myself space to really intentionally work through very specific feelings through very specific baking acts. I find that really fascinating and like something that right. I'd love to experiment with. Yeah, yeah. And with the way the book is set up, you might choose a feeling and it might be with a recipe that you have not thought mm -hmm. about before that you might not sound that great to you, but I'm sure someone around you would love to eat it. But um, yes, many of the recipes are designed with the actions that we're doing in the recipe to be a part of the emotion. Um, so there's the recipe for black pepper snowballs is paired with vengeful. Yes. Um, and, and black pepper, I think, is really underutilized in baking. It's like an old, old method of baking um, that I'm trying to bring back in. I put it in my pumpkin pie bars as well. But with these cookies, like we're rolling the them in powdered sugar and the powdered sugar is flying everywhere. And that's to help you visualize this anger, this vengefulness that you have um, in a physical space. So it's in reality in a tangible way rather than just existing in your head. Yeah. Okay, so I have a curiosity, I think both Stacey and I do, for people who we admire their work and their work is food adjacent. Was food an important part of your growing up? You mentioned your grandmother in the book. And then related to that, because your cake decorating is a form of activism on your Instagram where you're at the Sweet Feminist, um, was activism a part of your growing up? So I, as you mentioned, learned to bake from my grandma, Jane. There was always something delicious when I would go over to her house. Um, and several of the recipes in Baking by Feel are in homage to the things that she mm -hmm. would make, like the butterscotch pie. Um, she would make it using pudding mix. Now I use it. I make it with my own pudding, mm -hmm. um, chocolate chip cookies. But I do love working with food because it has this capacity to foster connections with other people. Yeah. And as I mentioned, there are a few things more pleasing to me than watching someone enjoy um, something that I made. 
but I learned to cook because there wasn't a ton of cooking going on in my house. And so it was something that I learned to do for myself um, over time. I'm a self-taught baker. And as for the activism piece, I come from a long line of strong women. Um, and even if it wasn't called activism, that's what it was. My mom, Melinda, was a single mom um, and she owns her own company where she does sociological research. Um, so she was blazing all these trails, creating her own path um, that hadn't existed prior to that. So it was never really a question that I could do or be anything I wanted. I grew up with that expectation. I grew up watching um, women around me do that. And her mom, my other grandma, Dolores, um, she's in her late 80s and she's constantly agitating for better treatment of older adults in our society. She and I sometimes talk about the injustices of the carceral system and reproductive rights and bodily autonomy. I'm very lucky to have those influences in my life, even if they wouldn't say that what they're doing is activism. Okay, I just have to say it's so interesting because I also grew up with a single mom who was a social worker, like put herself through graduate school. So it, it's in like a very interesting path yeah. to similar but different ends. Interesting. Yeah, just that we both ended up in a in food adjacent things and also like in, in a as emotionally aware people. Right, right. There's just so much opportunity in food for lots of things. Twenty twenty four is the year we're focused on finally reducing dinner time overwhelm at Didn't I Just Feed You? And that means making grocery shopping easier and more cost effective, especially when it comes to the foods we all tend to spend the most on, like meat. Enter Butcherbox, where you can count on incredible deals on premium cuts. At Butcherbox, you can choose a curated box or customize your order of one hundred percent grass fed beef, free range organic chicken, pork raised crate free, and wild caught seafood to stock your fridge with all the proteins you need for the week, month, or even the year at prices that are hard to come by at the grocery store. That's all your protein shopped for in one shot at great prices delivered to your door with free shipping. Just one change, switching over to ButcherBox, and you guarantee yourself fewer trips to the grocery store and savings that are hard to find at the supermarket. Dinnertime overwhelm be gone. ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of a weeknight meal essential, three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. Plus, you get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at butcherbox.com backslash D-I-J-F-Y and use the code D-I-J-F-Y, short for Didn't I Just Feed You, to choose your free offer and get $20 off. Do you ever feel like you're in a never-ending cycle of snacks and meals? We get it. That's why we're excited to share HomeThreads, the ultimate solution for creating a stylish and functional family space. At HomeThreads.com, discover furniture that can handle the chaos of family life. From wipeable dining chairs to kitchen tables and light fixtures. Or you can just freshen up your kitchen with trays, counter lamps, decor, and other affordable accents that will help you update your kitchen into a room you love spending time in. Head over to HomeThreads.com slash D-I-J-F-Y, short for Dinner and I Just Feed You, to get a code for 15% off your first order. Because if you're going to be feeding them three times a day, plus snacks, you deserve a home that feeds your style. HomeThreads, love where you live. That's HomeThreads.com backslash D-I-J-F-Y today to get 15% off your first order. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, Build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. Is anyone else struggling with what to wear these days? 
I've been pretty frustrated with getting dressed over the last few months as I've navigated body changes, and some days I quite literally have no idea what to wear. Enter Armoire. Armoire allows you to rent high-quality designer clothing for every occasion. When I signed up, I took a style quiz, and based on my preferences, they offered suggestions that would best match my life. I've been renting clothes from Armoire for a while now, and the more I rent, the more on point the suggestions get. Plus, you send what you wear back, which is a great way to try new styles without waste. Armoire also has such a fantastic range of options. Whether you're planning an outfit for a date night, packing for a conference, or maybe a family event, or just need some updated options for everyday life, you'll be the best-dressed person in the room without ever having to find time for an exhausting shopping day. Right now, Didn't I Just Feed You listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash D-I-J-F-Y. That is armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash D-I-J-F-Y to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try armoire today. So May is Mental Health Awareness Month. We're talking about feelings. We're talking about activism. Curious how your work and the activism you do relates to mental health? Like, are these like two parts of a whole for you? Yes. I would say that most of my activism work is um, focused in the pro-abortion movement, um, especially in the past few years. And I find my work there, the pro-abortion work, to be really deeply entwined um, with mental health and well-being. The first is that it's it's horrible being pregnant when you don't want to be. It can be catastrophic for your mental health. And I know that from firsthand experience. So things like abortion bans and restrictions um, are attacks on mental health um, as well as attacks on bodily autonomy. And I didn't speak about my own abortion publicly or really even privately uh, for several years after um, just because there's so much stigma and shame. So now I see my purpose is doing whatever I can to remove that stigma and make sure that people never feel like they have to hide their abortions um, or feel any kind of shame. I primarily choose to do that by trying to change the language that we use. Um, so I'm really focused on using affirming language, language that speaks to the actual experiences of people who have abortions to counter the language of whatever anti-abortion people are using. Another way I do that is by saying the word abortion without apology. And I've made the decision to use the term pro-abortion uh, rather than pro-choice. Um, and there are many reasons for that, but ultimately is that there's nothing wrong with saying the word abortion um, and that pro-choice can be pretty meaningless if there isn't actually a choice, which is you know true in many places, um, like here where I live in Texas, uh, particularly since the fall of Roe. So yeah. you're definitely making this connection between, or you've made a connection for us between your personal mental well-being and your activism. Did your activism also actually help you heal in different points in your life? Absolutely. Once I once I started talking about my abortion, I, I really didn't stop. And that was a really freeing experience for me um, to connect with other people who have abortions and become a part of that community rather yes. than living in this place of uh, shame and trying to hide this impactful experience in my own life. Yeah. I also want to back up to what Stacey said a little bit because she's connecting your mental health 
to being pro-abortion, but there is actually research that be like having pro-abortion legislation, access to abortions um, or lack thereof is impactful to maternal mental health. Like there is research and data that backs up how important that is. And I think it's easy for Stacy and I to like make the connection like, okay, mental health of parents, mental health of families is related to food because how we feed ourselves is a form of care. And when we can't feed ourselves well, because maybe we're carrying a pregnancy that we don't want, um, then we also cannot feed the rest of our family well. And I'm going to forget the statistic, but like a lot of abortions are also not just this. It's this idea that it's like all single women, but it's uh, oftentimes people who already are like in established relationships, who already have children and they're making a choice in order to be able to care for their existing families the best to the best of their ability. Right. The majority of people who have abortions are already parents. Yes. Yes. And I'm currently pregnant now and it is just only, I'm very excited. Thank you. Um, But it has only strengthened my resolve um, in making sure that people are able to make um, whatever reproductive decisions are um, are right for them. And there's also a ton of research that I remember from way back in my days when I worked at Sesame Workshop that the most significant indicator of a child's health is the mom's mental health. Right. That makes complete sense. And it's not just a child's mental health. It's a child's health, period, overall health is so deeply connected to how our mental health is doing <laughs> as moms that like I just it's so vitally important that we hold moms in our society close and really listen to what we're saying <laughs> about Absolutely. what we need because that actually is what protects our kids. I really am like action oriented. I'm one of, I like in, didn't I just feed you episodes? I'm like, okay, what are the brass tacks of this? Like, what's the takeaway? And so I want to direct people to your Instagram where you're at the sweet feminist. And you also have a Substack called a little something sweet. And there you share recipes and you sh- share stories, but do you also share action items yes. for people who want to like, yes, they want to bake and they want the chocolate chip cookie recipe, but they also really want to know like, how they can protect abortion rights where they are. Yes. And I feel like that is a huge section of people that are interested in cooking and baking and also interested in protecting abortion access. Um, So yes, I have resources at the bottom of every post on my Substack saying, um, if you need an abortion, this is the best place uh, to get information. Um, That would be I need an A.com. Um, the organization We Testify has um, great information about abortion storytelling, but about also about accessing care, about um, supporting people who have abortions. Um, and also, I would recommend that people donate to local abortion funds um, because they will continue to help people access care regardless um, of legality. Yes. Okay. One super fun thing. I think it's super fun. Before we leave, we <laughs> love to play. <laughs> A game called Kiss, Mary Kill. Um, and I think because buttercream is often your medium. <laughs> I mean, I know you bake beyond cakes, but like, especially on your Instagram and in your Substack. Okay, I, I want to make you Kiss, Mary Kill three forms of buttercream. Um, and just because we want to make sure listeners are on the same page. American buttercream is butter and powdered sugar. Swiss meringue buttercream is sugar plus egg whites that's like cooked and then turned into a meringue and you add butter. 
or there's French meringue, which is like a cooked sugar meringue, like you're whipping egg whites and then adding a, a sugar syrup and butter added to it. So Kiss, Mary Kill, American, Swiss, French buttercreams. Yeah. So I love this question. <laughs> um, <laughs> so for the kissing, I am going to go with the American buttercream um, because it's the classics. It's very easy to make. And I think you always need a simple option. Um, it is very sweet. So it's not what I would reach for initially, but I do think you need that option. I would love to marry the Swiss meringue buttercream um, because this is my absolute favorite of the frosting options personally, um, because it's not too sweet. It's really light and fluffy and just so velvety and smooth. I'm, I'm a big Swiss meringue buttercream person. I just made me sad. I would have to kill the <laughs> French meringue. <laughs> it's so fussy. It's so fussy. And that's why I had to choose one. And I just chose this one because it's it's finicky. I, I, I like it. it. It has its place, but it's finicky. Yes. I yeah. am obsessed with Swiss meringue buttercream. So I'm so glad that you chose that as your Mary. Mm -hmm. And like, French meringue has a place, but I don't know that it's necessarily like has any better qualities than the Swiss meringue. And there's such a more narrow margin of error with French I meringue. Agree. Like, and you're dealing with hot sugar syrup, pouring it into your mixer, which is like a little bit nerve wracking. Yeah, it's intimidating. Do you want to feel some fear? Yeah, <laughs> live on the edge. Yes. That's live the on the edge. And we do need that sometimes, but yes. you know, nine times out of ten, I'm going for this. I've meringue. only made French once in my entire yeah. life and career, but yeah. even I do love Swiss buttercream too. American buttercream yes. is way too sweet for me. Yes, it is. It is very sweet. Well, Becca, thank you so much for your time today. We really enjoyed having you. Thank yes, you. Thank you so much. I had such a wonderful time. That was a great conversation, but everyone just heard it, so we don't have to talk about that. I want to talk about something that came up very quickly at the end after we hit stop recording, because I want our audience to know that we were asking Becca about her Substack, and she was saying that one of the reasons why she started it, and it's great, by the way, y'all should go and follow, subscribe, is because Instagram is really suppressing her content. I just think this is interesting. I think that if you're someone who's on social media a bunch, or maybe if you work in a field where being, you know, participating in social media is really important to your work, you've probably heard rumblings that like a lot of people who are activists, a lot of people, you know, who are out there saying things that aren't just like, we love cute puppies, are... <laughs> saying that they really feel like the algorithm pushes their content down. We heard the same thing from Zoe Potter. She was talking to us about being a body positive fat activist and that when she shows any part of her body, she sees a completely different set of like statistics. First of all, the, her on TikTok, she was saying they won't even publish her content right away. So we're hearing a lot of stories directly from creators this is a very real experience for them. So I don't know. I guess I just want people to know that this is happening and we're hearing directly from creators that this is happening face-to-face -face when we're having conversations with them, not just something that they're blasting out on social media to you know get you to like or follow or put alerts on for their content. And it is a reason to go over to Substack where Becca's able to write long form content and really like hand out resources and be in conversation with her audience. Yeah. There's something that's bubbling up for me that's like related to our recent conversation with Jessica Wilson. Mm -hmm. 
And the activism that we're able to do on social media, a lot of times we tell people like, oh, if you want to like the first step in being more active is to diversify your feed, make sure that you're following people who are active in those communities and prompting you to do work around those things. And so it's a good reminder that just because you follow someone doesn't mean that's it. You have to do the physical follow-up, like whether it's subscribing to their Substack and supporting them financially or doing some of the things you mentioned, like sharing their work more so more people see it. I know that sometimes that seems silly, but it's not for nothing. And also like prioritizing them, like checking out what they're up to every once in a while as part of your follow-up work as being an activist. Yeah. And this is going to sound self-serving. I swear it's not. But like just a reminder that a lot of podcasts have ads. So technically that's not free labor, but if you guys only knew how ads work, you'd understand that it really is nominal given the number of people who actually listen. But, you know, on Instagram, like a lot of this content is free content meant to inspire and connect. So the more you're inspired, the more you're able to connect with those creators. It really is meaningful. Speaking of connection and supporting us, how about you come on over, come on in to the inner circle, the you <laughs> listeners community. You can join for free at didn'tijustfeedyou.com backslash community. There you can also find all the details about becoming a supporting member of the podcast if that's in your budget and getting bonus episodes, um, other goodies and direct access to us. You can also follow us on Instagram. We are at didn't I just feed you. We're so creative. Huge thank you to our producer, Samantha Gatsik. I'm Stacy, And I'm Megan. Stay well fed until next week. It's cool if you don't stay sane. <laughs> Be sure to subscribe to Didn't I Just Feed You wherever you're listening. And don't forget to rate and review. 